Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 113 of History of the Marine Corps, American Samoa. With the potential of the United States entering World War II, American Samoa emerged as a linchpin in the Pacific defense strategy. With tensions rising and rumors of a Japanese attack swirling, the Marines swiftly fortified the island, constructing defenses, coastal emplacements, and anti-aircraft positions. To bolster their forces, the Marines established the 1st Samoan Battalion, which was made up of native recruits who played an instrumental role in defending their homeland. The Marines' presence in Samoa grew to over 10,000 strong, transforming the island into a training ground for future battles. Their efforts helped safeguard communication routes and acted as a deterrent against potential aggression. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Significant adjustments were needed when the Navy transitioned from sailed-powered ships to steam-powered. This advancement in technology presented a unique dilemma for the Marine Corps, as their role in traditional naval warfare started to be a thing of the past. The advent of this new technology allowed for the use of heavier, longer-range weapons, and the reinforced armor eliminated close-quarter combat on the sea. The days of Marines manning the top mast and picking off enemy sailors became a thing of the past. To compensate for this technology shift, the Marine Corps had to reestablish its value to the United States. Although the new technology had extended range and enhanced defenses, it sacrificed efficiency. Sailing vessels could remain at sea as long as the crew's endurance allowed, only requiring stops at port for fresh water and food. Steam-powered ships relied on coal to operate, and the Navy had limited locations for refueling. Don't get me wrong, steam-powered ships were unquestionably superior to sailing ships. At the end of the day, the purpose of these vessels was to inflict damage upon or annihilate enemy resources, and the newer technology held a distinct advantage in achieving this goal. But 99% of the time, when naval vessels were not actively engaged in combat, their maintenance posed a challenge. Large-scale steamship operations required coal depots that were well-stocked. This restriction confined the operational range of steamships to regions where coal was available. 
the more established European nations managed to adapt to this challenge relatively quickly. They had already established colonies beyond their homeland, allowing them to construct or expand bases as needed. On the other hand, the United States possessed few territories outside of North America. To address this limitation, the U.S. established a coaling station in Samoa in 1878. In 1887, 72 years before its eventual statehood, the United States secured a treaty with Hawaii to establish another coaling station at Pearl Harbor. During the late 1800s, Asia wasn't the primary concern for the United States. Their focus was on enforcing the Monroe Doctrine, which concentrated on the Western Hemisphere. Most of our attention centered around this region, and it became a priority for many senior naval officers. One of the biggest challenges in making this mission a reality was the high cost of establishing and maintaining advanced bases. The United States developed a strategy to acquire territory and established advanced bases whenever opportunities arose. This is the primary reason why the U.S. has roughly 750 bases spread across 80 countries. We make up 75-85% to 85% of the world's total overseas military bases. At the time, the U.S. Army couldn't take on the task of seizing and maintaining territory. They lacked the trained troops that could support this scenario and dedicating the necessary resources the army would need to get to that place would compromise the army's main responsibilities. The navy was left to address this gap itself. Now it's evident today what the answer should be. Just use the marines. But in the late 1800s, this solution was far from obvious. The marine corps had never been involved in such operations, especially on this scale. Seizing and securing advanced bases was challenging and Marines didn't even have an established artillery unit at the time. Plus, they were a tiny branch. Throughout the 1880s, the average size of the Marine Corps barely grew to 1,900 men, hardly sufficient to adequately staff multiple bases worldwide. One proposed solution was to entrust the responsibility to sailors. Joint amphibious landings between sailors and Marines were common in early Marine Corps history. The Navy didn't just ferry Marines ashore. They actively fought alongside Marines in battle. They were present at our very first amphibious landing in the Bahamas. So naturally this gave rise to the question, were Marines still essential? One of the biggest opponents to the Corps was Navy Captain Robley D. Evans. Evans earned the nickname Fighting Bob during the Civil War after he held a pistol to a surgeon's head to prevent the amputation of his wounded leg. Having personally observed an inefficient amphibious landing involving Marines, he questioned the value of retaining the Corps. He was adamantly against the Marines, even three decades after this incident. In an 1896 edition of the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, Lieutenant Fulham authored an article titled, The Organization, Training, and Discipline of the Navy Personnel as Viewed from the Ship. This essay critiqued the Marine Corps, prompting discussions among various officers, including Evans. In his words, quote, Coming back once more to the question of Marines on board ship, their presence seems to me to be a question for each officer to settle for himself. Do you want Marines? And if so, why? I answer without hesitation. No, 
I do not want them because I think sailors are better men for shipwork. The more Marines we have, the lower the intelligence of the crew. One can scarcely call this desirable in the vessels we now have to go to sea in. It cannot reasonably be claimed that you can make a landsman any better by dressing him in a button-up coat and putting a red stripe down his trousers, unquote. Damn, that's harsh. The sentiment expressed by most officers in this article is similar to Evans. There were a surprising number of comments about the intelligence of Marines. Now, I find this fascinating because I didn't realize the crayon eater stereotype dated that far back. I tend to overthink things, and this had me thinking. Is there really that big of an intellectual gap between Marines and other service branches? Or is this just a little Shakespearean, the lady doth protest too much? There's no question that Marines have always been one of the most efficient military branches in combat. So if it is the former, how much of a lower intelligence can be tolerated before there are diminishing returns? We know that McNamara's Project 100,000, where people with lower IQs were allowed to join the military, had a negative impact on the Corps. So low intelligence has a limit. I think intelligence is vital for an efficient fighter, especially in the modern age. And the Marine Corps leadership methodology at least requires contextual intelligence. Every Marine is required to understand the mission and make sure it's accomplished. That was especially the case during World War II, when Vandergrift became Commandant. Standing on a makeshift platform in a coconut grove, Vandergrift addressed the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps officers as they were gearing up to hit the shores of Bougainville. Quote, In leading men, your loyalty must reach down to them. In battle, men require very little. They must have confidence of fairness and a feeling of team effort. This can be created by letting them know the immediate plan of action and why it has been chosen. A man fights better when he has a sense of the common objective, rather than merely a knowledge of how things look from his own foxhole. Unquote. Despite this perceived superior intelligence of these officers, the Navy was never able to handle the mission. When the Spanish-American War started, the Navy turned to the Corps for this responsibility. The Marines formed a battalion, including a small artillery detachment, and seized control of Guantanamo Bay for the operations of the U.S. fleet in the Caribbean waters. On 10 June 1898, Marine forces landed, swiftly established a secure beachhead, and held their ground against a numerically superior adversary for a month. The quick and decisive contribution by the Marine Corps humbled many naval officers, a recognition acknowledged by Admiral Dewey. Later, he stated that the Philippine insurrection might have been avoided if he had a comparable Marine detachment in Manila Bay. Within the next few decades, the United States quickly expanded its presence in established military bases throughout the globe. A color-coded system was implemented to outline potential strategies in the event of conflicts with other nations. For instance, Japan was designated as orange, Germany as black, Britain as red, and Ireland as emerald. Each color-coded plan had a strategy for the related country. By the 1930s, the United States faced the possibility of war with multiple nations simultaneously, prompting the evolution of the color-coded war plans into the rainbow plans. 
1941, a meeting between the United States and Britain resulted in an agreement that identified the decisive theater in the Atlantic and European regions due to Germany's predominant role within the Axis powers. If Japan entered the war, the approach towards the Far East shifted to a defensive stance. The United States introduced Rainbow Plan 5, which assumed an alliance between the U.S., Britain, and France, allowing for offensive operations by American forces in Europe, Africa, or both. The unexpected attack on Pearl Harbor ultimately changed this plan. Key bases were established on Midway, Johnston, Palmyra, Wake, and Samoa. Samoa held particular significance as its defense was essential to safeguard communication routes to the Southwest Pacific. The responsibility fell upon the 7th Marines for this task. The 3rd Battalion was the first to arrive on the 28th of April, 1942, followed by the remaining troops two weeks later. The regiment, which included the 1st Battalion 11th Marine Artillery, was responsible for defending the Samoan Islands and ensuring the lines of communication remained open. The American Samoa Islands were inhabited by a population of around 10,000 people. Tutuila was the largest and most densely populated city, where a significant portion of the 7th Marines were assigned. The 52-square-mile city was surrounded by mountainous terrains and dense forest. The town also featured a harbor capable of accommodating large naval vessels. Upon their arrival, the Marines immediately began preparing the island for defensive operations. With an extensive amount of undeveloped land, coupled with a small population, the Marine Corps had a large labor force and a lot of room to build camps, supply depots, training areas, and small arm ranges. Marines began to establish coastal defenses as well as anti-aircraft emplacements. These included four 6-inch naval guns and six 3-inch anti-aircraft guns. But even with these measures in place, the Corps recognized that this setup may be inadequate in stopping a determined enemy assault. Small beach defense garrisons were needed to help protect the island, and the Marines didn't have the personnel to fulfill this requirement. They turned to the local population for help. In May, the 7th Defense Battalion received authority to create the 1st Native Reserve Battalion. The 1st Samoan recruit was enlisted on 16 August 1941 and would be part of the 1st Samoan Battalion, Marine Corps Reserve Unit. These recruits were outfitted and trained using rifles sourced from naval stores and strategically positioned across the island, where they would use their expertise in the terrain to better defend the island. The Corps authorized the strength of this battalion to 500 men. The 1st Samoan Battalion was part of the Marine Corps Reserve and was led by Marine officers and NCOs. Distinguished by a distinct uniform, these new Marines sported the traditional Lava Lava native skirt in scarlet-trimmed khaki. Their attire included a scarlet-piped khaki garrison cover, a white undershirt, and a scarlet sash. A Marine Corps emblem was affixed to a scarlet shield and sewn onto their uniform around their knee level, near their rank. They were known as the Barefoot Marines, since footwear was not part of the uniform. Upon receiving the news of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, Lieutenant Colonel Lester A. DeZez 
commander of the 7th Defense Battalion, quickly positioned his men into their defensive positions. The Samoan Marine Battalion, previously in reserve status, was immediately placed on active duty and tasked with reinforcing the existing defenses on the island. Tensions ran high, and scuttlebutt was rampant for the next few days. There was a prevailing anticipation that Samoa was among the probable targets for a Japanese assault. Given its relatively light defenses, significance as a crucial communication route, and strategic location in the Pacific, Samoa was deemed a key point for potential Pacific theater action. The Brigade Intelligence Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Bales, sent a report to Larson in February that stated, quote, In its present unprotected state, Western Samoa is a hazard of first magnitude for the defense of American Samoa. The conclusion is inescapable that if we don't occupy it, the Japanese will, and there might not be a great deal of time left, unquote. At this point in the conflict, Japan didn't have any plans involving advances into the South Pacific to disrupt communication pathways in Samoa. Despite the constant rumors that a Japanese attack was imminent, the island didn't see any action for over a month. The first sign of enemy presence occurred on 11 January, when a submarine launched a seven-minute attack on the naval station. The submarine operated from a distance beyond the reach of coastal defenses, resulting in only minor damage to the station. Two men were wounded by the fragments from the attack. A little over a week later, General Henry Larson received orders appointing him as the military governor of American Samoa. This appointment came while he and the 2nd Brigade were en route to the island. Upon his arrival, Larson quickly got to work. He positioned the 8th Marines in the beach defense positions previously held by the 7th Marines and commenced a program of expanding and enhancing these positions. The 2nd Battalion 10th Marines positioned their artillery units in temporary locations and quickly started constructing permanent emplacements. Larson quickly dispatched the shore-based squadron for anti-submarine operations, and he also prioritized the development of the airfield on Tutuila. When Larson arrived, the airfield was only around 10% complete. He issued directives for continuous construction efforts around the clock. To accelerate the progress, he assigned the engineer company to help out. During his first three months on the island, Larson's primary focus revolved around establishing defensive measures. It was extremely challenging work. The brigade arrived during the rainy season and the frequent storms destroyed hours of work in minutes. To compensate for the potential weakness in Western Samoa, Larson engaged in negotiation with New Zealand to bolster its defense capabilities. Wallace Island, a small French possession 300 miles from Tutuila, was also in their sights for protection. In collaboration with the free French government, they began plans for securing the island. Agreements were finalized on 20 March. The United States was assigned responsibility for the protection of the islands, and the other two nations agreed to help with the defense. The 7th Defense Battalion was deployed to various positions across western Samoa. Meanwhile, the 1st Marine Division in New River, North Carolina, was reconstructed to form a 3rd Marine Brigade, designed to provide reinforcement. Brigadier General Charles D. Barrett assumed command of this brigade. 
The 3rd Brigade consisted of the 7th Marines and the 1st Battalion 11th Marines. Leathernecks from the 8th Defense Battalion were sent to Wallace Island. By the beginning of June, more than 10,000 Marines were stationed in the Samoan area, with ongoing reinforcements continuing to arrive. Larson's efforts led to the successful operation of the airfield. Before long, Marine Aircraft Group 13 occupied the newly built airfield and provided additional assistance. The decisive Battle of Midway forced the Japanese to rethink their aggressive campaign, and despite the pervasive anticipation of a potential Japanese attack, it never came to fruition. However, the considerable work invested in fortifying the island's defenses was not in vain. Samoa became a major advanced training camp. As the conflict unfolded, Marines needed for island defense were taken from recruit depots. The island chain became the perfect segue for young Marines, offering a relatively secure environment to get their feet wet with essential principles before being sent to the front lines. As the war went on, the Marines completed the construction of defensive structures on the island, which resulted in a diminishing threat of a Japanese invasion. By 1944, the war progressed further north, and Samoa became more of a staging area for amphibious operations in the Solomons. By the summer of the following year, the 1st Samoan Battalion was disbanded, and the volunteers returned to their daily routines. Before the Marines left, they thanked the Samoans for their hospitality. Major General Larson summed up the event, quote, The last official act of the brigade was a TOFA demonstration and celebration. TOFA is Samoan for goodbye. The staff and I entertained all of American Samoa's ranking chiefs and talking chiefs at a kava party. Kava is a Samoan non-alcoholic drink, which was followed by a tour of new installations, including roads, the airfield, and the training school. The celebration was brought to a thundering finish when squad after squad of men, each an expert in a particular activity, showed the natives what awaited the enemy should he ever come visiting. Automatic weapons and machine guns, all loaded with tracer ammunition, grenades, mortars, anti-aircraft pieces, and artillery, were fired with a split-second timing that kept the air filled with lead, fire, and smoke for more than 30 minutes. The last crack of the last shell was really Tofa for the 2nd Marine Brigade. Another Marine job had been done well. Samoa was secure. Unquote. Thanks for listening. This episode's audiobook is The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Allegro. The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross is a controversial and unconventional book by John Allegro, a scholar and a philologist. Published in 1970, the book explores provocative theories about the origins of Christianity and the role of hallucinogenic mushrooms in ancient religious practices. In the book, Allegro presents the idea that many elements of early Christianity can be traced back to using hallucinogenic mushrooms, particularly the Amanita muscaria, in ancient religious rituals. Allegro argues that key Christian figures and stories, such as Jesus Christ, the Last Supper, and the concept of resurrection, connect to these psychedelic experiences. He suggests that the story of Jesus might be an allegory derived from mushroom-induced visions. 
To support his claims, Allegro draws upon linguistic and etymological analysis of ancient texts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls and various myths and legends. He proposes that early religious language and symbolism were influenced by the effects of these mushrooms, leading to the development of religious concepts and rituals. Questioning the origin of religion tends to always be met with controversy. Many scholars criticized Allegro's theories for being speculative and lacking solid evidence. Some accused him of stretching linguistic connections and disregarding historical context. Many were concerned about the religious implications of his ideas, and they feared that challenging traditional beliefs about the origins of Christianity would cause a lot of problems. Look, we're all adults here. If you believe the Bible should be taken at its word and there's no room for interpretation, this book probably isn't for you. This is just one man's theory. I'm not recommending this book because I think he's right or wrong. I just find his interpretation very interesting. The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross remains a highly debated work in religious studies and ancient history. While it does offer a unique perspective on the possible influence of hallucinogenic substances on religious symbolism, its claims are far from widely accepted within academic circles. And for those of you who are looking to broaden your views, this book serves as an example of the complex intersections between religious interpretation, linguistic analysis, and historical speculation. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.